everyone, and welcome to the Change Makers Podcast, where we chat with interesting and engaging individuals here and far about change, making change, living change in their own lives, how they've experienced unimaginable change, and innovative ways people uplift the lives of others. We chat about triumphs over tragedies, mindset matters, and how we live out our life's purpose inspirationally. So please join us to be inspired and empowered to be the change you want to see in this world. You know, we can all be change makers in our lives. Here's to the change you're about to bring forth. I could not be more thrilled and um, blessed to have with us Miss Pat Gillette of Bringing Audiences to Life today. I am beyond thrilled that she has agreed to join us to talk about the ever-important topics of gender equality and diversity from a woman who knows. So thank you so much and welcome today, Ms. Pat Gillette. My pleasure to be with you and thank you for doing all you're doing to spread the word. Um, you know, it like, it like you, it is my life's purpose to empower and inspire women across the country, whether they're women lawyers or women in business or living just life female. Um, we have a lot of work to do, um, and still do we've done, we've come some ways, but we still have a lot of work to do. And so, um, uh, I, I want to tap into your experience and, um, you know, and hear firsthand things that you have done and the work that you continue to do that is ever important, um, in helping us all move forward. And one of my favorite phrases is lift as we climb. Nice. <laughs> I like that. Lift as we climb. So share with our listeners, um, if you would, Pat, the, um, you know, a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to where you are today, and, um, and some insights into your professional journey. So I am an employment lawyer and have been for 40 plus years. Um, and I primarily worked in big law. So I was in huge law firms um, that were national and then global in scope. I was in-house uh, for six years at Bank of America, which was one of my favorite times in my career. Mm. But over the course of my career, I developed a, what we call a huge book of business in the legal industry, um, meaning that I controlled a lot of clients and therefore a lot of money. And as a result, that gave me power in my law firm. So my work has been really to figure out ways that we could think about work life in law firms and the legal industry differently. Um, I come from a position of, I have two kids and a husband of 40 plus years. Um, so I, I love men and I love my family life, but I don't think the conversations that we have about work-life balance are really the quote unquote problem with the legal industry and other industries. I think the problem lies with the structure of firms and organizations. And so I've dedicated my career to thinking of ways that we can convince people in leadership in our law firms and corporations to embrace the fact that there are structures that are impediments 
to women and, frankly, men being successful if they have families or other obligations such as elder care, those sort of things. Um, I started out doing that in 2006 when I founded something called the Opt-In Project, which was designed to um, look at the legal industry compared to other industries to see if we could learn from those other industries. Because as lawyers, of course, we think we're the smartest people in the world. We call other people, just to think about it, we call other people non-lawyers. There's no other profession that does that. <laughs> so that just shows you sort of the arrogance that we have as mm. lawyers. But anyway, we, we spent a year and went across the country um, and looked at government sector, tech sector, financial services, professional services, and learn from those industries the kinds of things that they were doing to advance and retain women in their profession. Um, and we then took that information and put it into the opt-in report that was published in 2007. Um, and it was really the first initiative nationally to begin to talk about the structure of law firms in particular and how those structures were holding women and, frankly, minorities back by the way they, the firms were composed and by the demands that were made and by the leadership, uh, et cetera. And so that started a national conversation about things that have now come to fruition in, in many law firms, which we were really happy about. Our, our report had a fairly big impact on law firms. Um, I took that information and went across the country and talked all over about uh, changing the structure of law firms, got booed off the stage by law firm managing partners saying things like, well, we've got a hundred white men who are willing to do the job, so why should we change the way we do our work? Um, <laughs> but I sort of steeled myself and said, too bad, I'm still gonna keep talking. Um, and as a result, many firms have implemented uh, some of the things that we talked about in the opt-in project. So that, that has been my message and frankly my baby for as long as I can remember um, being active in this space. Um, now, that's led me to other issues that are equally important. So I have done some studies on what makes people successful in business development um, that shows that women have no less skills than men um, in terms of business development, that it's really the opportunities that are given to women versus the opportunities that are given to men that is at the root of the problem. And so, again, I've taken my study, which is called the Rainmaker Study, turned it into a book called Rainmakers Born or Bred, and delivered that message to law firms and corporations across the country. And then the last thing that I've done that's really had quite a bit of impact was the Mansfield Rule. Um, this was part of the 2016 uh, hackathon that was sponsored by the Diversity Lab, which is doing just terrific work in this space. And we were charged with finding ways to advance and retain women in law firms. My team uh, came up with the Mansfield Rule, which most people at this point have probably heard of, uh, modeled after the Rooney Rule, and it requires that 30% of all candidates for leadership positions in firms and corporations be women or minorities. Um, that rule has now been uh, adopted by 60-plus firms across the country. Um, and so what we're doing is not necessarily moving women and minorities into those positions because they still have to be chosen, but we are forcing firms and organizations to increase the visibility and increase the pipeline of women and minorities for those types of positions. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, 
I bet you go to bed at night with a smile on your face, knowing how much positive impact your passion has made on so many lives. <laughs> well, it does make me happy. I'm, I'm someone who really believes that we have to look at actions that have impact. And I think that for too many years, what we've been focused on is what I call the check the box mentality. Mm -hmm. Let's have a diversity coordinator. Let's have affinity groups. Let's have uh, training for women and minorities because, quote unquote, they need it um, without seeing whether those actions have any impact. And when you start looking at actions that have impact, it changes what you do and how you do it because you throw out those programs that don't have any impact and you embrace the programs where you can measure and see a difference being made. And that's why, for example, the Mansfield rule is so impactful because you have to have 30% of your people who are nominated for these positions be women or minorities. And so you can see that that has a direct impact on visibility in the pipeline. Sure. Um, sure. So, yeah, I'm, I, I do uh, smile occasionally and say, yes, I feel good about the things that I've done with the help of a lot of other people. I don't mean to say that I've done sure. these things by myself. For sure. So I have lots and lots of questions um, in um, a number of the things that you've touched on, but I want to, um, I want our listeners to know uh, more about uh, two things. Number one, why did you choose a, a career in the law? Uh, this is sort of funny. I really wanted to be a politician. That was my goal. And I actually did serve as an elected official in my hometown for four years uh, recently. And I realized that was the worst decision I ever made in my life. Mm -hmm. But in my younger years, I really wanted to be a politician. And so I looked around and saw that politicians went to law school. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. So I went to law school with the intent on getting major involved in politics and then running for office. Um, once I got in law school, I really got sort of uh, more interested in women's issues um, and took a whole bunch of courses in employment law. And that became my thing that I did for the next 40 years. Mm. Um, but my motivation for going to law school was to be a politician. Interesting, which kind of goes to the point that, and, and I do a lot of mentoring, um, mostly of young women um, who are either in college, headed to college or headed into law school. All, all along that track. And um, it's interesting the motivation that um, particularly women have of going into the law um, and what their idealistic views may be and then what they're smacked with in reality when they step into their private first private practicing position. Um, and that can be very disillusioning to many and then they they pivot and then they choose other areas of how they can use their law degree for the good of you know their community or or politics or whatever there's so many things that can be done with the having that jd after your name exactly there's a lot i mean you know people go in with sometimes with a siloed vision of what they can do with a, a jd but a jd does give you credibility um, and it trains you to think in a way that I think is actually important. Yes. Um, and so there's value that comes from it. And, you know, law firm life is not right for everybody, but law firm life does give you a discipline and a way of communicating and power. Um, and so one of my concerns is that we see a lot of young women and now young men leaving law firms because of the 
ridiculous <laughs> uh, demands that are put on by so many law firms in terms of billable hours and lifestyle issues. Um, and they lose that power that they would otherwise have right. to have big impact on some of the legal issues that are so important in our country. So, you know, one of my real goals is to find ways that we can make it more attractive for this next generation of lawyers, men and women, to stay in the game. Because I just think it's critical that we have people in our big firms and and other firms that are going to have the power to make an impact on some of these important issues. Absolutely. Um, and, and I want to ask you more about that. But my second outline question is, so when you chose law as a profession... Um, how is it, did you serve in, um, you mentioned big law, but did you go straight into big law? Um, well, big law was defined a lot differently sure. <laughs> when I was doing this in 1976 when I graduated. Um, so I went to the biggest firm that did employment law at the time in San Francisco, which is where I live. Mm -hmm. uh, I then went in-house for six years at Bank of America, as I mentioned. Right. Um, I then went to a small boutique firm for about six years where I headed up their litigation practice. And then I went to Heller Ehrman, which was a big firm at the time. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately I took my team and went to Oric, yes. which is where my last firm I practiced at. Yeah. So Oric, massive massive firm, does great work, um, certainly big law um, by even today's standards when there are mind-blowing numbers. I think the top, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the largest firm is Denton's at about 4,800 lawyers. Is Yeah, I, I, I don't keep track of who's the largest, but that sounds pretty large to me. <laughs> I, I not even, that's, just a, that's, a, that's just a hot mess right there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but I'm sure you saw, in addition to your training as an employment lawyer, um, you had more instances uh, that you could probably record in a book of blatant women, what, what, you know, really just women issues, which are not women issues, they're human issues, but of women being held back. Um, not per afforded the same opportunity as their male counterparts. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because that had to have impacted when you were in the middle of all of that as an employment lawyer, seeing what you saw and no, you know, no disparity towards Oric or any other law firm. It's just, as you say, and I want to talk more about the structure uh, of um, what you saw, you know, from your observation when you were in the practice of law. So I have to say that I was lucky in my career and with the firms that I chose that they were more um, enlightened, I would say, and more committed to equality in the workplace. Um, so at Heller, I'll, I'll just tell you an interesting little tidbit. Um, there were several of us who were women and who controlled business, not several, but about five who controlled large amounts of business. Um, and, and we weren't formally in positions of power, but we had influence. And so one day we called a meeting among ourselves and we said, well, this is sort of stupid. We don't have any power, formal power, but we have informal power. So what can we do about that? So we called the chair of our firm, who was a dear friend of mine. Um, and when he walked in and he saw all of us, he said, oh, I know what you guys want to talk about. You want to talk about the part-time policy? And we said, no, we want to talk about power. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, after he picked himself up off the floor, because women don't normally talk about power, we had a really good discussion and, you know, brought to his attention the fact that we appreciated being included informally in power discussions, but we wanted to have formal power. And so things changed dramatically at the firm after that, where we saw women being put on the influential committees, et cetera. Not that they weren't there before, but we saw more of a concerted effort to make sure that women were in those positions. Um, there was also an instance at Oric several years ago where um, the chair of the firm at the time, Ralph Baxter, announced the new management team. And it was all men. Mm. And so those of us who were sitting in the audience sort of went, wow, because they were all on stage and it was all white men. Um, and one of our clients, a woman named Michelle Banks, who's done a tremendous amount to advance uh, the interests of women and minorities in the legal profession, uh, was general counsel of The Gap at the time and a big client of the firm. And she called up Ralph and said, what the heck's going on? Mm -hmm. You know, And so that phone call... I believe made a difference because the next time we were selecting pe people to be on the management committee, we saw a difference in the composition. Mm. So there's those kinds of, you know, sort of global big um, issues where the, the leadership of the firms that I worked in was not certainly as um, diverse as it should have been. But in both cases, I think the firms were receptive to having um, – discussions and then taking actions to increase the diversity. Now, did I see women discriminated against in terms of compensation, in terms of work assignments, in terms of uh, business development opportunities? Sure, that was some of that. I saw some of that in, in all of the firms in which I worked, small and large, uh, and even at Bank of America when I was there many, many years ago. But, you know, I would say my career experience was much more positive than what I hear when I go on the road speaking. Um, so when I'm on the road speaking, I'm speaking to big firms, small firms, medium-sized firms all across the country. And surprisingly, there is a, a high level of a lack of understanding that diversity is important both to keeping women and minorities in the workplace and to the clients who these firms are serving. So my goal is to raise awareness about that and make people understand this is not something that you can just continue to ignore because it makes a difference in your ability to attract and retain people and also to your clients who have obviously control over your financial future. And what do you find that the lack of understanding, where does that emanate from? I mean, you know, I mean, you have to almost be hiding under a rock not to have read you know, just news articles or, you know, all of us who've been in the legal services world um, for any amount of time, you know, you have all kinds of legal journals and the ABA and every, you know, there's so much attention paid to um, gender equality, implicit bias, um, gender pay gap, um, the diversity issue. I mean, after at least, at least five, if not 10 years with more direct focused, what do you hear leadership saying as to what their lack of understanding, what do you see the disconnection to be? So I give a presentation on implicit bias that I say, uh, rec who me, question mark, mm -hmm. recognizing Im implicit bias, because a lot of what is happening, in my opinion, in the legal industry uh, rests in implicit bias and, to be blunt, ignorance. Yes. Um, yes. Some of it's intentional still. There are some firms that I think intentionally 
don't want to have diversity at the top or they don't care. Um, so there is some of that that goes on. But a lot of it has to do with um, not recognizing the biases that we bring. And that is sort of um, compelled and uh, furthered by my comment about actions that have no impact. So you see firms that say, what are we supposed to do? We train women on business development and they still don't have a lot of business. So it must be them, right? Mm. It must be them. And they're, and besides, they're just going to leave and have babies. And so, you know, why would we invest money in them? That mentality exists. What it doesn't take into account is the, the reason training women for business development, for example, is not sufficient is if they aren't given the opportunities to go out on pitches, if they aren't given the opportunities to have lead assignments in cases, if they aren't given the opportunity to inherit institutional clients, they can't do the same things their male colleagues do. And that's where the disconnect is. But people see it as, well, women just can't do it. They need special help and gee whiz, we've given it to them and they still aren't doing it. So therefore they must be deficient. Um, that's just one small example, but that you can translate that into other uh, things that happen in firms and, and organizations. So I think a lot of it is wrapped up in a lack of understanding and an unwillingness to change. I mean, there are things about the legal industry that just need to change if we want it to exist in the future um, and to attract the millennials, both men and women, who have a completely different view of what life should be like as a professional. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, firms are just ignoring that in the same way that they ignored women's issues, quote unquote. Now, the one thing I love about millennial men is that they are pushing the same buttons that women have been pushing for years. And we know that when men begin to push those buttons, it seems, quote unquote, important or, quote unquote, normal. Um, and so as we see more millennial men saying, I want parental leave, I want a more balanced life, I don't want to have billable hours, I want to be judged on merit. As we see men pushing those kinds of issues, I think we'll begin to see more changes. Um, yes, I absolutely agree. And it's really a breath of fresh air um, to see how involved millennial men are with supporting their female millennial colleagues. I've seen a tremendous culture shift inside law firms that we work with. And mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just like, oh, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly it's just a, it's just a pee. That needs to happen, a little bitty seed that needs to happen. But the fact that, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard the phrase and it's just it's pretty disgusting. But it's like, you know, you can as a woman, you can you can have all the good ideas. But if you make if you make the man think that he it was his idea, not your idea, uh, and then it's going to get passed faster. I mean, that <laughs> just that just just makes you want to slap somebody <laughs> but, uh, but you know but it, but to to see that you know that with this next gen, you know next generation of millennials that they get the fact that, i mean there does seem to be more gender equality in the workplace in general um with the younger folks and it's, it's just you know i don't i'm not a researcher so i can't really point as to why but it's certainly you know i've often said if our daddies would just go ahead and retire and go down to florida and, and flip the leadership um to the next generations then you know we maybe can see some hope in the uh, floundering legal services sector 
um, that they can retain, you know, recruit and retain the brightest versus the, you know, the, the flight of these women lawyers around, you know, years four to six that are, it's just, it's an impossible uh, work environment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is one other interesting phenomena that I've noticed, which is that baby boomer men, particularly those who have daughters who are at the end of their career, mm-hmm. are actually being seen the light as well, because all of a sudden they're seeing reality uh, hit their daughters or their sons, mm-hmm. and they're saying, gee whiz, that's what they were talking about. You know, I, I say it's not personal till it's personal. And personal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you do see some baby boomer men, but you identified a really important point, and that is that a lot of these white men who've been in their positions forever continue to stay in their firms. And I'm not an ageist, you know, obviously I'm older, uh, but it's time to let the next generation take over and let these fresh new ideas come in and and uh, spur change in, in our industry. Uh, I, you know, I absolutely agree with all due respect. I, I worked in-house at three different law firms over 20 years here over on the East Coast in Philadelphia before starting our um, business KLA marketing back in 2008. And now, you know, we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of law, law firms and thousands of lawyers and an increasingly uh, frequent engagement we have is working with management committees and dealing with the very delicate and uh, fraught with landmines of generational secession planning. Um, mm-hmm. With these leaders, you know, that have, you know, like the what I, we call the founders trap um, uh-huh. <laughs> to me. But I mean, the name partners have, you know, they're now in their 70s and their 80s and they're holding on for dear life. Um, yep. We have numerous engagements where, um, you know, the partners are being bought out, but yet they self-appoint themselves chairman. And it's like. You know, it's 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 really very sad, but at the same time, um, because legal services has never been as competitive as it is, is is today, you know, and if they don't fall in line with business models, then they're just going to get their lunch eaten by all the competitive firms around them. So, um, it is a very unfortunate, very very difficult um, issue to deal with, and of course, you know, with the. Uh, women who are just trying to do a good job for their clients and, you know, make sure that their voices are heard. So one of the things I'd like to go back to one of the things that you said a little earlier um, and and help me correct me if I'm wrong, but you made mention, I believe, of the structure of law firms at, in its present form is non-conducive um, to recruiting and retaining women and minorities. Yes. <laughs> um and, you know, that structure is beginning to change. I'd, I'd like to say part of it's because the issues we raised in the opt-in report, but part of it's maybe just natural attrition. Um, but there's things like, I mean, let's start at the point one, which is the billable hour. The billable hour is a ridiculous way to measure anything. Yeah. Um, and the billable hour just has to be revised. I've said to some of my friends in accounting firms, if you can come up with a better way of predicting budgets for law firms, you will make billions of dollars because obviously lawyers are not good at math. We know that it's a, you know an axiom, um, but somebody needs to figure out how to do it outside of the billable hour. I mean, so that that number one has to go. It's just a stupid way to measure 
uh, performance, which is the primary thing, because and it negatively impacts people who have other obligations, whether those are family obligations or uh, some kind of elderly care or whatever it is. It just impacts their ability to to be successful when all you care about is how many hours you bill. So that's number one. I'm so surprised uh, that it has lost lasted as long as it has. Uh, me too. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a researcher, but, you know, back to the, you know, what, 1900s or whatever, um, when, when did that actually come about as an acceptable form of fee for service? And who in the world would ever, uh, on the client side, agree to that? I mean, that to me is a mind blowing fact in its in and of itself, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, it came into play in, in sometime in the 1950s. Okay. Um, and, you know, has been around since. But people used to give bills that said professional services rendered and the clients wanted more details. So then they said, oh, let us show you what we did. And then it became, well, how much did that cost? And now we have the bill of hours. So that's number one. Number two is the partnership structure needs to be completely rethought. The the idea that there's only one path up um, and that path is dictated by your number of years out of law school. So if you're eight years out of law school, you should be ready to be partner. And if you're not, you're out. That's crazy. Um, yeah. right? um, so number one, you need, we need to rethink whether partnership should be the end goal. I mean, the accounting firms have done tremendous work in this area and have really changed their structures to reflect the fact that not everybody wants the partnership ring. Right. And you shouldn't be made to feel like a failure if you don't want that, which is the way we think about it in law firms. So that whole structure needs to be rethought. Measuring performance by year out of law school needs to be rethought and replaced by merit-based evaluations. I may be able to succeed in four years at doing stuff that somebody else may not be able to do until six years, and I should be rewarded for that um, by and not held back by my year out of law school. So that needs to be changed. And then we need to really think about the way we compensate and what we compensate for, because currently in most firms, compensation is based on books of business. And as someone who benefited from that, because I had a large book of business, Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I would have been willing to sacrifice some of the money that I made in order to keep people at the firm who were critical to my success. Um, But instead, we say, if you don't have a book of business, you get paid less. Um, And we're going to reward the rainmakers and the big uh, business developers by paying them the most because God forbid that they leave the firm. And then we're going to give them leadership positions because they must be really good at leadership. All those ideas are crazy, in my opinion. There's Um, no basis for them, is there? No, no. I mean, the fact that I can bring in business doesn't mean I can lead a firm or that I have any common sense when it comes to organizational structures and how to make those kinds of management decisions and leadership decisions. So those the that structure of rewarding, of, of su- encouraging what I would say is siloing by saying I get rewarded for what I bring into the firm versus my team. Um, and I just believe partly because the millennials really love teams, mm-hmm. but also because that's how I always handled my group is as a team. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a much more effective way to manage than to be uh, putting people into silos and saying, do better and you'll get more money. Um, and who cares whether four people from your team leave because you're a jerk or you don't, you know, they don't feel like they're being properly rewarded. So 
I think that whole compensation system and the siloing based on business development needs to be rethought as well. And that's a big one. Yeah. Um, that's a big one. Um, you know, I, it's amazing to me, and we work with our client, client law firms on these issues. Um, we often are retained to, um, you know, help folks, whether whatever the sector is in business, business development skills, training and coaching and finding opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But then when we peel that layer of the onion back and we see what the compensation structure is, I'm like, you know, we, our, our team says, you know, we need to dig and deal with this compensation structure before we do any kind of training because there's, it's disincentivizing your lawyers um, to, to originate and generate any business. Uh, it's just some of the craziest things that make no sense whatsoever. But of course, you know, the, the, all the, 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 the funds um, lawyers hang on to originations for years, if not decades, that they may not even touch anymore. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Oh, God. I mean, it's just like, how in the world do you people stay in business? I don't even care. <laughs> it's, it's very distressing because, you know, there's a lot of people's lives, you know, and livelihoods at stake. And they have to play by the rules of the leadership who are making these rules or enforcing these rules uh, that, that defy logic. And it is just it, it, so anyway. Um, but. You're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen this um, over and over again in law firms. And what we find, quite frankly, Pat, and, and I'd love to hear your input on this, is, you know, where's the political will to make these changes? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I think that the dynamic changed um, in terms of the potential for um, reinventing the legal system after the economic crisis in 2008-2009 because what happened then was a sea change in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yes. What we saw was that law firms had been in control of relationships with their clients. Clients were afraid to lose their law firms. They you know, didn't question what their law firms did. They were much more um, compliant. And when the economic crisis hit and, and clients had to really think about their legal spend, all of a sudden they realized actually lawyers are just a service provider and right. we now can begin to dictate some of the things that we want. So we want lower fees and we want diverse teams and we want um, some kind of accounting for what you're doing and why you're doing and we want discounts. And that power of the client is what I think will really help harness change. I just think that the clients are going to, at least on the coast, the clients are pushing extremely hard to force law firms into what I would say is the 21st century um, to say, rethink your management teams. I, we want diversity. We want teams that are working on our, our, our um, matters. We want to see diverse people, women and, and minorities, give, being given opportunities. We want so-and-so to get a re origination credit. I mean, they're, quote-unquote, interfering with the business model that law firms have had for years in a way that positively impacts change. And then judges are doing that as well. I mean, we know that there are judges across the country now who are saying, if you want to argue something in my court that you've already briefed, I want to see a minority or a woman making the argument. Otherwise, submit it on the briefs. That's a huge, huge coup. Um, yes. And what it does is it gives these younger um, and diverse lawyers opportunities 
to show that they are competent, which may give them the opportunity then to go to a client and sell themselves as someone who can handle their matters independently. Um, so I think that clients, the judicial system itself, and then the millennials, I, I come back to them, they're just going to keep pushing because they're they're speaking with their feet. They're walking. And law firms yeah. can't afford to not have the next generation of lawyers. So, you know, that's going to be when law firms finally wake up and say, oh, my God, we're losing all our younger lawyers. That's going to make a huge difference. And some yeah. have. I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of optimism for the legal industry. Well, that's <laughs> I love hearing that. I mean, I, uh, you know, we work with associate attorneys who are so hungry to learn. I mean, one of one of my crusades um, as a business owner and someone who's been in legal services for close to 30 years in-house mostly is, you know, law schools mm -hmm. do not equip and prepare law, law students for post-graduation life. Um, you know, I know that firsthand. My stepdaughter just graduated law school in May. My husband runs a law firm. And then in, I got them on the first, you know, on day one of their private practice, where, you know, the word marketing was never even, or business development wasn't even mentioned in law schools. Um, and I, they're getting gypped, in my view. And uh -huh. <laughs> because they, you know, you can learn how to do an oral argument or a brief, but you don't know anything about the business of law. And, uh -huh. uh, oh, God, I mean, don't get me started. But um, so I've been working to, to work with and partner with law schools on, you know, equipping their students to at least have knowledge and exposure to what a billable hour is or what's an origination or what does marketing mean to them and, you know, relationship building and all these things that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's very distressing to see poor law school students come out, you know, strapped with so much debt and then they are, you know, their hands are tied because they have no ability to build a practice aside from all the institutional um, unfairness um, if they walk into a private, you know, practice uh, of a law firm, but then they have no knowledge. They don't have this. They may they have the skill set. They don't realize they have the skill set. Yeah, you know, I I too have been doing a lot of speaking at law firms across the country. I mean, at law schools across the country. And what I find is that these students are hungry for this information. That the mm -hmm. practical advice of how you survive in a law school. And I talk a lot about business development because I frankly think it starts at year one in your yes. law firm. Um, you know, they, they eat that stuff up. And in some ways they're more interested in some of the, than some of the associates I speak to in law firms um, because, you know, to them it's like, Oh yeah, that makes sense that I would have to be able to bring in business as well as be a very good lawyer. Um, and that's a message that was never delivered in law school before now. Um, so that's a critical part of being a lawyer. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that you do in your spare time. It's right. an integral part of who you are as a lawyer. Doing, talking about what the billable hour is, talking about origination credit, talking about the relationships and the politics of law firms, critical, in my opinion, to, to these young men and women being successful. It just is mind blowing to me. Um, uh, but I've seen it for as long, you know, since I, I started in um, working in law firms and legal marketing in 1991. And, you know, I came finally came to the conclusion that it's just a institutional ignorance and that I, with all due respect to the institution, um, I, you know, went around and did one round of um introductions uh, to law schools here and on the East Coast. And one 
one comment stood out among all that I had met with all these deans of law schools of the pushback of their faculty against teaching in any way, shape, or form, any practical um, information programs, whatever, um, is that they, the law school faculty, did not want law school to become a vocational school. Mm -hmm. That was the direct quote that I received back from a law school dean, um, very well-respected fella. And I'm like, you people are so out of touch. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, that's the default. And again, to me, it goes to the whole arrogance of lawyers that we think we're special and we don't want to be called, oh, God forbid, a vocational school. Um, <laughs> you know, that that has a negative context and doesn't reflect right. the incredible um uh, intelligence that we all have, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, that's the fear of law schools. And, you know, you have law school professors who've never been in a law firm. This is one of my complaints about, yeah. you know, people who talk about these issues. If you've never been in a law firm, if you've never had to develop a client, if you've never had to work with a crazy partner, you aren't equipped to talk about what it is like to be in a firm and prepare these young people. What we know about millennials is they like to know what they're in for. Right. Um, and so if the more we can do to bring reality to them before they enter the profession, the more likely they're going to stay. Um, but, you know, law, for, law school um, professors are worried about their own tenure and their own uh, futures. And I understand that, but you know, it's, it shouldn't be a zero sum game. We should be able to supplement the, many wonderful things that those professors are bringing to these students with some practical reality of this is what it's like. And, you know, ask me questions. Let me share information with you. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and that, that in itself is a absolute um, mission of mine. Um, Great. I mean, because I've, I've, you know, I was in it for so many years. I saw it. I, I coached individually uh, young lawyers and uh, women lawyers, and it's it's just heartbreaking to see that they've done they've done their work. They've done what they were told to do. They're high achievers. They did well. You know, they were being led by people who are not attached to reality of the pr private practice of law. Um, and now they show up at these law firms and they don't get mentored. They don't get trained. They just you know tied to their desk with the billable un an impossible billable hour requirement. You know, I've, I've had people reduced to deers and coaching, telling me, you know, I don't know what else to do. I, my, I'm now I've got a child. I've got to support my child. It's wrong. It's mm -hmm. just wrong. So, um, you know, I try to use that in a positive way to, um, you know, to equip the lawyers. I mean, that was one of the reasons um, I published a book a couple of years ago, an ebook, um, how women lawyers can create the career of their dreams by charting their own course. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was seeing in law firms, and I've saw this from day one, is that, you know, no one's doing women lawyers any favors. And as as females, we're conditioned and socialized to follow the rules. Um, and so we get so, you know, so fixated on following the rules that it really derails our career goals. Exactly. Exactly. So now my, my, so that was an ebook and I, um, I published a book in 2017 and I'm working on a second book called rules are for sissies. <laughs> um, because as females, it doesn't pay us to follow the rules um, in some ways um, because it, it, obstructs and impedes us becoming more self-actualized in our life, career, and, and business. Exactly. That's great. I'm glad you're writing about that. 
Um, and, you know, and then some people, they just never stop to think about it because that was how we are socialized as females is that mm-hmm. we need to rock the boat, you know, don't make a big stink about it, yada, yada, yada. So, um, but back to you, I, I'm interested to hear, um, and I know you've put a lot of thought in the cert, in the research and your studies is, is how can firms get started in a meaningful way to uplift women and their diverse populations and to help move them and in, in however, in, in, you know, whatever steps into leadership ranks? Uh, I think the easy answer is move them into leadership ranks. You know, we know that if we have more divor- divor- <laughs> diverse uh, voices in the room, that we will get better decision making, we will get more social consciousness, we will get more financial success. And so the best thing that firms could do is to really look at having their leadership committees, whether it be the executive committee, the compensation committee, the partnership promotion committee, have diversity. Um, And I don't mean one woman, I mean 30 to 40% of the people on those committees should be women. Um, And secondly, we should divorce uh, business development from leadership. We wouldn't, we should stop assuming that business development means that you're a good leader. Um, So putting only rainmakers in positions of power is just a stupid way to manage and it doesn't advance the ball because those people, myself included, are not necessarily the best at leadership. What we want are people who are really good at leadership. And so if law firms could begin to identify the characteristics that make successful leaders um, and separate that from, and you have to have a lot of business, and then diversify their leadership at the top, that's where that's where the change gets made. You know, so I'm I'm sort of tired of talking only to women about these issues. I want to talk to the people in power. That's yeah. where you get the change. And until we're in positions of power, all those issues that are important to us as women and minorities are going to continue to be afterthoughts. Um, so my my Machiavellian approach to this is you get women into positions of leadership and then you see change in law firms. Then you see people having meaningful discussions about eliminating the billable hour, about thinking about partnership structures differently, about thinking about rewarding people by merit, about considering the fact that we're losing the next generation of lawyers because of the culture of so many of our firms. Those are issues that I think women are uniquely situated to talk about and to press for, but they've got to be in the room where the decisions are being made. So, you know, I encourage everybody I talk to, to think about leadership, to ask for power positions, to ask to be considered for um, positions in the firm that will lead them to leadership positions, and then to have their women's initiatives stop throwing, or in addition to throwing spa days and teas and all that stuff, that they focus on identifying women who can move into these positions of power and then putting pressure on the firms to do that. That's where I think the power is. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and we can do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It. I mean, there is, you know, um, so I, I believe that with every ending, there's a beginning. And I think that in our recent past, we, we saw maybe from the, you know, not to get political, but in the election, the political season of 2016, we saw an uprising of women that we've never seen before, um, which I think should be an encouragement to all women that, you know, when, you know, I forget the phrase, but, but not from one, but for many, uh-huh. 
when we gather together like-minded and we have a common purpose, it, it, we can, you know, there's nothing that we can't do. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that it's time for women to stop talking to themselves and stop thinking that if we do a good job, we're going to be selected or asked to the prom. Um, right. <laughs> you know, what we need to be thinking about is how can we position ourselves to get into these powerful positions so that we can change our world? Um, and I believe if we do that and we work together, um, which means that some of the queen bees that, you know, like the idea that they're the only woman in the room are going to have to get over that um, and either step aside or put, let other people climb the ladder with them um, and not push them down. So, you know, it's not only men that keep women from succeeding. It's some of these queen bees that, I think mm -hmm. it's pretty cool to be the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, I'm with you. We've got to work together. We've got to have a common purpose. And we've got to be focused and strategic in the way we do it. Absolutely. And, and we can't thank you. And I know that you have a huge, broad reach across our country. You are one of the country's foremost thought leaders on um, gender equality and diversity and so hats off to you for all the work and the, the tireless travels that you do I see you're going to be on my coast uh, in a couple of weeks with the uh, up here in the New Jersey State Bar I am um, at that invitation um, just yesterday um, but uh, let me ask you a couple of quick fun questions and uh, I want to be respectful of our time and our listeners time so and I don't know if this is true or not but if you had a daughter Entering the private practice of law, what are a few gems of wisdom that you would want to impart to her? So I only have two sons, uh, neither okay. of whom is a lawyer. Okay. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so first I would have told my daughter she should uh, go to public policy school instead of law school because I think it's a more interesting way to attack some of the big issues that are facing our country. But let's assume she didn't follow my advice. Um what I would tell someone, any young woman, whether it's my daughter or not, entering the practice of law is be true to yourself. Follow your passion. I think those are the two most important things. I loved my career as a lawyer. I enjoyed pretty much every minute of it. Um, but that's because I was doing something I felt was really important and I felt like it was being impactful. And then the third thing I'd say is you have to set priorities. You have to know what your limits are and what's important to you and to your family if you have one. And so, for example, for me, it was really important to be home with my kids for dinner every night. I love to cook. I'm a pretty good cook. I'm good at cross-examination and cooking. That's about it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I made it a point that I would come home and cook dinner for my kids, and we would have discussions around the table, and when they went to bed, then I would go back to work. Um, so I would encourage my daughter or any young woman to know what your priorities are and make it a point to ensure that those priorities are met and that that means for a while you may sacrifice some of your personal life, mm -hmm. um, because it's a hard job. Being a lawyer is a hard job. It's not an easy job. And anyone who thinks you just kick back and earn a lot of money is, you know, in a fantasy world. So I would want her to understand that, you know, there are going to be some sacrifices. But if you're doing something that you love and you're keeping your priorities straight, I think that that makes a difference. Awesome. That's wonderful, sound uh, advice because um, I talk to a lot of girls in, um, in high school and some in college that they think they're going to take those LSATs. And I just want to scream. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm like, oh, don't do that. But you know, I've reconciled myself to there's many, many things you can do in a career in law. You do not have to be a private practicing lawyer and having that GD will JD will never actually hurt you. Yeah. Um, so but so if you could give your younger self one piece of professional advice, what would that be? Hmm, that's a hard question. Um because I don't really regret anything that I did during my <laughs> career. Um, I would probably say, think a little bit more before you speak. <laughs> oh. I tend to be a pretty straight shooter. And there were times in my career, both in my firms and in court, um, when I spoke a little bit too soon before I thought through the ramifications. So I would probably say, do that. I would also say that... Um, this wasn't so true of me, but I, I asked for a lot of opportunities when I was a young lawyer. I would have asked for more if I'd known that people don't get offended by you asking. Um, right. What it shows is ambition and it shows commitment to the firm or the organization that you're in. Um, so I guess that's something that I would have done a little bit differently, although I wasn't that shy about asking, as you can tell. <laughs> well, you know, we find that in 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 that my work with um, working with women um, over the what we call the confidence gap, and that's Russ Harris's book. Um, uh -huh. Is that women don't ask? They don't ask, you know, for they don't ask. They don't ask right. for things for themselves, and that's a whole thing that goes back to confidence, which we do a lot of work with. Um, but um, so, last question, and th these are fascinating. And I hope this is fun for you. But um, so totally unrelated to legal, legal career, your work um, with your um, bringing audiences alive and uh, you're, uh, you do a lot of pro bono work and a lot of different organizations. But when you are not consumed with your professional responsibilities, how do you enjoy spending any leisure time? So I have three things that I like to do in my leisure time besides swimming. I love to swim. Um, but what I really love is my granddaughter, who's two years old, and I forgot oh. how adorable toddlers are, so I'm sort of reliving that time of my life and enjoying her immensely. Uh, secondly, I have two wonderful sons, one who's a professor of math. <laughs> we, we think he might be adopted because he has two <laughs> lawyers as parents, so how he became a math professor, we'll never know. And my other son does public policy um, and is quite impactful in the kind of work that he does. And I'm very proud of them. I love spending time with them and with my daughter-in-law. Um, and so that's the second thing I do with my leisure time is I spend a lot of time hanging out with my kids and talking to them as much as they'll let me. And the third thing I like to do is cook. I love to cook. I'm pretty good at it, as I mentioned. Um, so I can throw a dinner party for 10 or I can throw a party for 150. It doesn't faze me. Um, it's just something that I find extremely relaxing. And then I have a husband of 45 years. So, you know, I got <laughs> him around. <laughs> so we do travel a lot. I was going to say, I think you've got some travel there. I think I saw yeah. some pictures recently. <laughs> yeah, no, we do travel a lot. So, so that's fun for me too. Um, but, you know, Kim, I also really love giving back to my community. So as I said, I did run for office. That was, for the first two years, it was pretty interesting. The second two years, not so great. Um, but that was really interesting and it really impressed on me how important local politics are. And I'm active, obviously, in a lot of nonprofit organizations that advance 
causes that I'm interested in, everything from musical theater to uh, equal rights advocates to uh, getting women on corporate boards. And so now that I'm in a position where I don't really have to worry about finances so much, you know, I spend a lot of my spare time trying to do good and give back to the people who were so generous to me. That's phenomenal. I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful testament um, that, you know, we, we do, we, as a way we, to earn our living um, and have a wonderful, rewarding, uplifting professional journey. Um, and then, you know, it's, then it's another chapter, right? I mean, exactly. Grinding exactly. it out at Oric anymore. Um, <laughs> at, but then you're, you know, I, you know, involved in all these things that have come, you know, to bring value not only and uh, reward to yourself, but then have such a positive impact on the lives of others. To me, that's a a, a life well lived. Well, thank you. It, it, it's been fun so far. You know, I'm looking forward to the next adventures <laughs> that are to come. <laughs> right. Next, uh, always next to come. The best is just yet to come. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you so much. That that concludes um, my questions, and I want to be respectful. This to me has been. Absolutely amazing. Uh, appreciate your time and your willingness to share with us and, and our uh, listeners. You know, we, we love connecting with discipline experts that, um, you know, have made that have and continue to make an impact um, in their chosen field and, you know, near and dear to my heart and, and a mission and crusade that I'm on is to uplift and inspire other women. And you are certainly a role model for us all. Well, I think the same of you, Kimberly. So thank you for doing everything that your organization's doing and for spreading the word so widely as you have. So many thanks uh, from those of us who are more senior in the industry. We, we appreciate the additional help so much. <laughs> we many all do thanks. it together. And I look forward to seeing you on your coast in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. That's Women, right. Women's um, Legal Conference, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to do this and for your really interesting questions and for all the information about what you all are doing. That's really great. Wonderful. Take care. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care. Bye -bye. All right. Bye-bye.